Dame tu medicina. Todo es fe. Give me your medicines. Everything is faith. Everything is conversation. Everything is patience. That's Don Enrique Lopez, interpreted through a voice actor. Enrique is a Shipibo healer, a curandero from the Amazon in eastern Peru. We heard about Don Enrique in the last episode when we met Carlos Tanner. Enrique is a maestro, a master healer. When he and Carlos first crossed paths 15 years ago or so, he was living in poverty in Iquitos. But now the men are successful business partners. Carlos runs an organization called the Ayahuasca Foundation. For one branch of his work, he brings students to Don Enrique's Incan Cana Plant Medicine School, located in the thick of the rainforest. That's where we are today. Day by day, we're going to receive medicinal plants. When you enter the plant area, talk to the plants. If you're sick, converse with the plants. My producer Rob and I are sitting on the floor of a thatched, circular structure called a maloca. It's a ceremonial building, and it's huge. Think ballroom scale. We're joining Don Enrique's newest crop of students. They've just arrived for an eight-week-long ayahuasca curandero initiation course. Rob and I are just dropping in for a few days, not weeks. But like these students, we're here to sample something pure. We're trying to get as close as we can to the heart of plant medicine. You'll remember when Carlos first came to Peru, he was in search of a genuine experience. And that's what he's trying to recreate here. This is billed as the real deal. But it's also a course tailored to foreigners, and it costs thousands of dollars. But back to this place. It's not a retreat along the lines that you've probably heard about. There'll be no acai bowls or poolside massage. There's no pool. This is a piece of land carved out from the middle of the jungle. To get here, we took a bus from Iquitos, a two-hour ride past farmland and shacks, past scrappy lawns where dogs compete for a patch of shade. At a pullout, we grabbed our packs and from there hiked another 40 minutes into the jungle. The trees are dense, the earth is orange underfoot. Blue-winged butterflies hover over the rolling acres. The property is pretty bare bones. There's a concrete home where Enrique lives with his family and shacks on stilts for visitors. And that's about it, because students come here to immerse themselves in the art of shamanic healing. They're here for the plants. They'll fast and drink purgatives and learn songs in the Shipibo language. And they'll participate in 23 ayahuasca ceremonies. That means they'll be drinking the brew roughly every other day. Any question, I'm here. I'm a big family. I share my energies. I'll give away my energies. What no teacher does, I do. I don't hesitate. I'm ready. In the Maloka, the group is splayed across the floor in various states of attention. Some are seated, some sprawl on thin mattresses. There's at least one person who's audibly snoring. But Enrique is upright. 
pacing the room in cowboy boots and a thick button-down shirt. His tone, his strides, the fist he makes to emphasize his points all remind me of an evangelical pastor trying to rouse his flock from slumber. That's because for Enrique, this is not just a teaching gig. This is a mission with high stakes. I want to send you home to be better teachers of medicinal plants. Why? Because thousands of sick people in your countries are hoping for you. And you are the future medicinal workers. Rob and I met most of this group yesterday. This is the 50th cohort to participate in Enrique's training. There are 18 of them, and all are either from the States or Europe. And they're all white, with the exception of one half-Iranian woman. Their ages range from early 20s to mid-50s, and each one says they've been called to do this healing work. One woman tells me, Ayahuasca asked me to dance, and I've been dancing ever since. Another man explained, I'm like Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole. Another, who has a tattoo of the white rabbit and its infernal clock, tells me this is a return to his true roots. There are a few who are so jazzed on their visions that I wonder if they just like getting high. But I try to rein in those judgments because these guys are all in for a ride. God's going to give you a gift like a crown. That's the gift. What's the gift? the wisdom and intelligence of medicinal plants. You are practicing what you're doing. That's how you learn. I'm Catherine Rowland, and this is Seeking. Up until this point, we've been in the West, looking at the benefits and trade-offs of the psychedelic renaissance. We've heard a lot of glorified stories about the traditional approach to plant medicine, and that's changing too. Today, Western disciples and the shaman who's trying to cure the world. There are many people who don't believe in medicinal plants. Many sick people are dying with simple illnesses because they don't believe in medicinal plants. Rob and I are with Don Enrique and Carlos. We're in a small maloca perched on a hill at the top of Enrique's property, sitting cross-legged on a dusty floor. Enrique is dressed for the occasion in a black embroidered western, and he's a little disappointed when he realizes our interview is only audio. I've been looking forward to this meeting for weeks. I'm hoping this is where all the pieces will click into place. It's for this reason we've traveled so far, to see this living pharmacy and meet the man who tends to it. Enrique gestures out to the jungle. This bark is for stings. These leaves are for stomach troubles. This fruit is for infections. His camp sits in the heart of it all. Rob and I, we're drenched as we speak with him, blinking through sweat. But Enrique is unbothered, totally at home. And I'd say almost indifferent to us. We're eager, smiling, clutching our gear. This trip, it's a big deal for us. But to Enrique, it was inevitable. Why do you think you're here? 
you're here by God's will, not by your own will. Wow, this is how our conversation kicks off. You're sent by God. Go do an interview with Don Enrique. I'm trying to figure out if he's implying that we're important, sent by God, or if he's making clear what a big deal he is. God sent us to talk to him. But I tuck that aside to focus on what we're here to do. I want to know about Enrique's path and how he came to initiate Westerners into the ways of a maestro. My grandfather, in the old days, was a teacher. He was a master of medicinal plants. Curious about all the medicinal plants. He had faith in plants. He talked to us about the old ones, like, for example, the, the, these big forests, these big mountains. For us, the indigenous people, it is a tremendous hospital. That's where we get the medicines to cure the family when we're sick. Enrique's grandfather was also an evangelical pastor. He put a lot of faith in the plants and in God, because in the past, the Shipibo Indians were very marginalized by the government. No nurse, no doctor ever came to visit us or to give us pills. Enrique started learning from his grandfather when he was still a boy and began dieting plants and taking ayahuasca as an adolescent. And when I was 11, 12 years old or so, he told me about the plant. I can see you're a good person. The plants need you. I want to teach you everything I know so that tomorrow, later on, you can help, so that you can help the family. Under his grandfather's guidance, he began the process of learning to fast and diet different plants. He became versed in the visions of ayahuasca. He listened to the Icaros, the magic songs. But then his grandfather became ill. When I was 18 years old, my grandfather started to get sick and told me, never look for other teachers and never trust other teachers. Your teacher is the same plants that you are going to diet. The plant will straighten your line. And so Enrique didn't seek out another maestro. He learned directly from the plants and gradually stepped into his own as a healer. When Carlos met him many years later, he was a married man living in precarity in a flood zone in Iquitos. But now he is rich and powerful. He says he's fulfilling his destiny, but it's come at a cost. See, now I have many enemies. There is a lot of ayahuasca in and around Iquitos, but just a handful of centers have essentially cornered the spiritual tourism market. Enrique and Carlos are among the relatively small number of financial beneficiaries. And Enrique's sense of having enemies tracks with what I'd heard in town. There's a lot of jealousy, dismissiveness. That guy, you want a real shaman? Come to my village. But Enrique insists that it was God who told him to teach foreigners. What does God tell me? Enrique, teach your students how to heal, how to prepare the medicines. Because for you to go abroad is very difficult. They will go to heal the person who is sick, the person who doesn't understand the plant. They will open their memories, teach them. His business is very lucrative by local standards. For this particular course, each student is paying around 7,000 U.S. dollars, and he's running four courses a year. 
Say there are 15 students per quarterly session, that's more than $400,000 each year. Portions of that money are going to Carlos and to the camp's many staff and to Enrique's family and, of course, to the running of the camp. Still, this represents a massive amount of cash. In the department of Loreto, where the camp is based, the average family income hovers around $10,000 per year. I've learned to raise my eyebrows when there's a lot of money floating around, but money doesn't necessarily make Enrique's intentions insincere. As he explains it, teaching foreigners, it's his last resort. Now the Shipibos are copying many customs of the Mestizos as well. Mostly the growing children don't want to dress like this. They don't want to speak the language anymore. When they're sick, more than the Mestizos, they don't want to take the medicinal plants. Only pill, only capsules. To Enrique, what he's doing is cultural preservation. He's teaching skills that he fears will die out. In local communities, plant medicine and traditional healing practices have been losing favor to modern medicine. Enrique acknowledges that this has been going on for some time, but the fact still makes him cry. Eso está muy mal para mí. Está muy mal. Carlos tells me later that this is a breach in Enrique's usual decorum. This seemingly unflappable man just weeping at the loss. I worry because we are forgetting our children. Tomorrow the children will not know what's wood, what's cedar, what's this. That is my concern. I worry because I do not want them to forget our customs. As Enrique is describing his concerns, his Western students are settling in. They're studying their songbooks and swaying in their hammocks. Despite being foreigners, not being indigenous, foreigners are now more interested in medicinal plants. They are now more interested in healing with medicinal plants. Now they're more interested in our costumes. I think of these two cultures, to put it simply, hurtling towards each other with this desperate wish. For the Western students, it's radical wellness, ancient tools to dissolve their modern troubles. But for Enrique, this is more than therapy. Where he's coming from, plant medicine is much bigger and more serious than most of us could imagine. Of course, we've been talking on this show about the promise of psychedelics in treating a number of mental health issues, depression, PTSD, anorexia. But Enrique believes the plants have the power to cure just about everything. That's why it's urgent to spread this tradition. He's treating cancer and infertility and heart disease. I'm stunned to realize this man is running a hospital. He's treating conditions of the mind and the body. So here is this alluring panacea that's going to cure cancer and maybe even save the world. And it's all dependent on our total surrender, on faith. What does it take to do that? We'll be right back. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. 
The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. It's not easy to be a master of medicinal plants. You go through a lot of things, a lot of trials, a lot of crying. I suffer a lot. Enrique holds himself to what sounds like an impossibly high standard. He states repeatedly that his goal is to heal someone in just one week. Cancer? Heart disease? He insists it works when it's a two-way street. He can get his job done if you believe. And the path to belief is the vision state of ayahuasca. It reconstitutes the order of things, truth, possibility, what life's wild ride is all about. Here it's called mariación. The plants themselves teach us through vision. When one is in mariación, the plant looks at us how the illness started and how it has been aggravated. It's going to open your heart like a movie that you're watching. Just have faith. Talk to your memory, to the plants. Have a conversation with your memory in ayahuasca. Tell the plants why you're here, what you want. In the Shipibo healing system, as Enrique describes it, it's not just that we humans look to the plants for help. To come to a center like this, to sit in a ceremony, is a response to the call of the earth. The plants have called us here. Why do you think people come to learn? Because the plant itself pulls. Why does it pull? Because the plants are concerned. So the plants themselves are concerned about us. My first reaction is, man, we're doing such a shitty job as a species that even the dandelions are alarmed. But I think Enrique is driving at something more holistic. We're inseparable from the world we're stomping around on. The plants want to draw us back into the fold. Enrique insists that Rob and I are here because we've also been called in by the plants in their ecological agenda. You're not in your own will. You're in God's will to come and do an interview with me and to share it to the whole world. A lot of sick people are going to listen, and that's what I also want, that people come to be healed. Let them come to meet me. Let them come to be cured with medicinal plants. As we wrap up our conversation, I'm thinking about this idea, that forces originating beyond ourselves have brought this moment into being, that we're part of a grander plan established by the logic of the earth itself. It's so appealing. We're not here because we're curious and did a lot of careful planning. We've been summoned. I grin at Enrique, but he just stares back at me. Polite eyes and a placid face. The lunch bell is ringing over the hill as we pack up our gear, and I'm asking myself what it might mean to surrender. Surrender to what? The plants? Well, here, it's to one magic tree in particular. They say it's the temple of God um, and that the, the, the tree is... The light is the presence of God in the tree. For them, it's beyond, you know, it's beyond comparison. Uh, they even allude to it having a role in Genesis, that it was instrumental in bringing life to Earth. 
That's a facilitator named Dean talking about the magical tree. It's called Noya Rao, and Enrique kind of holds the monopoly on it. It's a prominent part of his lineage and a big selling point for his students. They're all thrilled about dieting a concoction made of its bark. When Rob and I met the tree along with this cohort of protégés, it became clear that they knew something we didn't because they all dropped to their knees when they saw it and began gathering its bioluminescent leaves. That's right, it's a glowing tree. Google away and you're not gonna find any matching species. That's because it also doesn't really exist. It's a myth built on top of an ecological phenomenon. One version of the story goes that once upon a time, a flood came to a village in the Amazon basin and this tree gathered up the villagers and flew them to safety. The Palo Valedor. It's a legend for some Shipibo people. I spoke with several in Iquitos who told me, this is all hogwash. But for Enrique, this myth is a big deal. He's a believer. And this is where things do start to sound a bit magical. Because out of the 400 billion trees in the Amazon, Enrique managed to find this mythical glowing specimen. One day, years ago, one of his workers tells him to bathe in the creek at night. Well, I don't know what it could have been. It could have been a person or it could have been sent by God, that person. Or it could have been an angel of God. I don't know. We bathed at 11 at night. And he tells me, turn off your light. Wow, I turn it off. Look up, he says. Up, I look. Tremendous light. So Rob and I decide to turn our attention to learning about this tree. And we're told to go to this guy, Dean. He's the authority. Because it's one thing to have a teacher, a human teacher, and they can, you know, they can tell you things, but to imbibe a teacher or to imbibe an enlightened being. By imbibe here, we mean eating the glowing tree. And to have its consciousness expressed through yours is a very different experience. That's after the break. It's nighttime at the camp. Everyone has dined on boiled rice and boiled eggs and boiled broccoli and retired to their cabins. Rob and I are sharing a wooden structure perched on stilts. Inside, there are two narrow beds and an awkwardly placed hammock. A single bulb dangles from the ceiling, but the generator's out, so we've rigged a headlamp on a post to welcome Dean to our abode. We wanted to talk to Dean, and for privacy reasons, we're not sharing his last name, because he is an ideal case. Someone who has faith, who's fully given himself over to the plants, and to the most sought-after plant, the Noya Rao tree. He's from South Africa and came to Peru to do an initiation course like this one about 10 years ago, when he was 25. And after the course was over, he stayed on, doing dietas, working for the center. He's here now as a facilitator, which means he's on call to help with everything, from emotional torment to urgent bathroom runs. Dean is a bit like Enrique. He doesn't follow a maestro anymore. He's a student of the plants. When Carlos first told me about him, I heard a tinge of envy in his voice. Here's Carlos. 
I stopped that path when my wife got pregnant and I stopped doing dietas. Not that I needed to, it's just that it's kind of time consuming where you're like isolated in the jungle and I had a baby. I started dieting a person instead of a plant. But Dean doesn't have any kids and he just kept going. When I meet Dean, I can see what Carlos means. He is all in. There is no humor or horsing around. And when the plant is in you, you are gaining the sensitivities of the plant. You're, you know, you're merging in a sense. And we often tell people, like, when you start this, you're, you're kind of no longer human. You're the hybrid. The end goal is that if you are successful in forging that relationship in a way that the plant favors, then the plant becomes a permanent part of your being. To Carlos, it's like Dean's merged with Neuerau. If you talk to Dean, you can interview Neuerau. I mean, how could I pass up an opportunity to speak with a sacred tree? It's the rarest and most sought-after tree in the tradition. And the tree is bioluminescent. The leaves glow. Usually the in, inside of the bark glows. I've seen mushrooms that grow on the tree glow. I've seen a, a seed pod that fell in the, the base of the tree and started to glow. From what I understand, it's not actually the tree itself that glows. It's a fungus that makes it appear luminous. But for Dean, that doesn't diminish the wonder. His faith in Neue Rau is as firm as my conviction that the earth is round. He was really concerned that we'd be mentioning the tree by name in this episode, that it would become another casualty of the ayahuasca tourism boom. I hold this tree incredibly dear to my heart and consider it to be incredibly sacred. I'm very cautious of not wanting to add to the commercialization and the kind of fad, the trend. It might seem a bit odd for him to share this concern. Dean is here in part because of a trend, the ascending global interest in psychedelics. But his worry is real nonetheless. He worries about the tree being exploited for financial gain. The more I experience that tree, it's not a tree, it's cosmic consciousness. It's everything. Dean is convinced the tree has a lesson planned for humanity. It chooses to teach infinite love and non-duality and, and these kinds of things. In, in her eyes, all things are connected. The idea that I can be an island, that's just an illusion, you know. I was curious. This divine syllabus, is it intended for all of us? Every person has a purpose, an ecological function, individually. And it's their kind of mission is to find that, what that is for them, the way I understand it. A healed, insane world is everyone finding their purpose, their passion, the song that the earth wants to sing through them. Dean believes the tree can show us that we aren't separate. We're all a part of the whole. But what does that mean beyond the camp? How does all that inner work and wonder show up in the material world? As you were speaking, I was taken back to our bus ride out here and looking out the window there are these corrugated shacks and collapsing buildings falling down the hillside. I've met some of the happiest people I know here and they're some of the people that have the least and they're like extremely happy all the time. Doesn't mean they couldn't be happier. Suddenly, I realized that in coming here, 
I'd indulged in my own myth-making around the power of plant medicine. I'd harbored the wish that it could solve our biggest problems. I was fishing for a statement on how personal revelation could change the world. I was hoping to hear that after chatting with the spirit of the earth, the Genesis tree, that you come away with something more. Being immersed here, deep in the jungle, being let in on an ancient tradition, I could get on board, believe it, when Enrique was talking about the plant spirits being concerned, needing us to course correct. I could even get on board that maybe everything was preordained, that our lives were following an issued logic. But this is where I lost the faith that Enrique had been ordering me to find. God's plan sounds like a miracle when you're a beneficiary and cold comfort when you're not. On our final night at the camp, Rob and I joined the students for their first ayahuasca ceremony. Sony isn't footing the bill for this. We're on our own, but I'm going to tell you about it. We're back in the big maloca. It's only about 8 p.m., but it might as well be midnight. The celestial darkness is so thorough. And in the darkness, the jungle really starts up. This space seems so vast by day, but now it's just a little outpost ringed by the roaring jungle. The students are again arrayed on mattresses around the room. Tonight, they're all dressed in ceremonial garb. Carlos had given each a long, cream-colored robe covered in intricate geometric patterns, close copies of what Enrique has also donned for the evening. In the candlelight, faces are obscured, but these pale folds of fabric seem to glow. Enrique serves the group by the light of just one candle. That afternoon, he and Dean had spoken about how to manage the trials of ayahuasca. The ceremony differs according to the plants. The plant teaches you, at all times, in all things, good ceremonies, bad ceremonies, ceremonies with pure sorcery. The plant tests you immensely to see if you're strong, if you're going to endure or not. Enrique orders the group to stay positive. If our mind starts to gallop away, return to love. And then he blows out the candle, and the darkness is complete. First, I clean people, because many people come with their memory very overloaded, with so many problems with so many worries or with so many drugs, their stomachs are not well. I'm just going to recharge the energies. Around the room, the medicine seems to kick in pretty quickly, as evidenced by the sounds of purging into little plastic buckets and the way the night has somehow joined the call and response with Enrique's songs. So when you leave here from the teacher, you're no longer afraid. You're already strong. You already know how to fight, how to defend, when there's darkness. The woman lying next to me, the same woman who'd said she's been dancing with ayahuasca, does indeed sound like she's in the hands of a lover. For hours, she's purring. The man on the other side is not having a good time. He can't seem to stop puking. There's a panicked edge to his cries. 
Later, he'll tell Rob that he's suffering from heart disease and is trying to treat himself with ayahuasca. He describes the process as agony, but insists he won't give in to fear. For my own part, I spend much of the night drifting on the slopes of Enrique's voice. I'm very much in the room until this purple ship with billowing sails comes swaying over the crest of a song. I climb aboard and we set sail, but hanging out on the horizon is this burning wall of fire. It's trailing us like the moon. And I come to understand that to get anywhere, I'm going to have to pass through this blaze. I can't bring myself to do it. The next day, as we're exchanging our last words with Don Enrique, I mention this vision to him. And he speaks again about God and the plants being a portal to God. But he also mentions demons. Doubt. Duda. Duda. He shakes his head, a gold tooth glinting. And in a flash, again, I wonder if I've gotten it all wrong. Maybe plant medicine isn't about neuroplasticity. It's not about digging up the root of trauma. It's not even about divine communion with the emissaries of the earth. It's just a matter of faith. It's about surrendering to the laws of the cosmos in which everything is exactly as it should be, in which healing is no longer miraculous, and when the incurable does persist in our broken minds and bodies, it's still a perfect part of the grand plan. But Duda, Duda, my doubt keeps burning. I left Peru uncertain about what's to come from Westerners making these pilgrimages. But there's a population that's been making a similar journey with profound results. Next week, I speak with wounded veterans who have found a peace they didn't even know was possible. Seeking is written and reported by me, Catherine Rowland. Our producers are Hamza Umerji, Rob Dozier, and Lily Thompson. Editing by Grant Irving and Lizzie Jacobs. Our executive producers are Grant Irving and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Music by Nolan Schneider. Mixing by Sam Baer. Thanks to our legal team, Rachel Goldberg and Allison Sherry. Special thanks to Tom Koenig and Steve Ackerman. 